Thank you for that welcome, and it's a real privilege to uh, uh, be here, and a pleasure. I come about once a year, and uh, there's an increasing number of familiar faces, but of course, a sea of faces I don't know. Do say hello, and tell me your, your experience of Britain. That's usually what people like to do when they <laughs> come and tell me. They say that it's a Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. Well, the times are certainly interesting, aren't they? Um, every conversation I've had this week has taken about um, 30 seconds to move on to, so what about Brexit? <coughs> and I have to admit, it's chaos. Um, one academic historian said recently that we, he thought we are living through one of the most significant political moments in the last hundred years, but that we will not understand the significance of it for a, at least a couple of decades. At the moment, it's just a mess. And um, it's not just Britain and Europe. Uh, an American friend of mine uh, said, said recently, we we have our own dumpster fire here. <laughs> and it makes people get passionate when you live in times of chaos. William Yeats, an Irish poet, in his poem, The Second Coming, wrote, Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, the blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, whilst the worst are full of passionate intensity. Chaos, he says, produces a, a, a blood-dimmed rising tide which drowns innocence, robs good people of conviction, and prods other people into passionate intensity. Um, in speaking in 1978, the uh, author and journalist Malcolm Muggridge, who had a very interesting personal pilgrimage from being a communist in the 1930s to uh, finally embracing Christ, he said, the world's way of responding to intimations of decay is to engage equally in idiot hopes and idiot despair. On the one hand, some new policy or discovery is confidently expected to put everything to rights, new fuel, new drug, detente, world government. And on the other, some disaster is as confidently expected to prove our undoing. Capitalism will break down, fuel will run out, plutonium will lay us low, atomic waste will kill us off, and so on. And we, we as Muggeridge, identified. We're living in an age of idiot hopes and idiot despair. The center cannot hold. There is no possibility of balance, of consensus in governments either side of the Atlantic right now, because our nations are gripped by that, that passionate intensity that Yates described. Well, Jesus lived in a not entirely dissimilar time. 
First century Palestine was a, was, a, was a foment of plots and intrigue. The Roman Empire ruled over uh, Palestine with brutal force and nobody liked it. There were uprisings and rumors of uprisings uh, more or less every year. Crucifixion of criminals and, uh, uh, and um, uh, terrorists were common, especially those who, uh, uh, who threatened Rome. Sometimes they were crucified by the hundreds. Sometimes in Jerusalem they were displayed on the walls. Jesus in Luke's gospel, as uh, if you've been here, you've been, you've been following his story a little bit. Jesus in Luke's gospel is heading towards that Jerusalem. The place where the uprisings were always focused on. The place where Rome always asserted its dominance. The end of uh, chapter 9, 10 chapters before the one we're looking at, we're told, as, Je as time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And now, in our reading, he's almost there. When he'd said these things, um, uh, some teachings there, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus provocatively is going to make it plain that he is coming as a king. The Old Testament expected the king of Israel to return to his rightful place in Jerusalem. They had long um, anticipated it. Indeed, to understand this passage, we, we need to, we need to um, just think about three particular moments in Old Testament history which shed light on what Jesus is doing here. The, the, first, the first little moment is in 2 Samuel chapter 15. I won't ask you to, to, to turn it up. What's going on there is great King David, the greatest king of Israel, is, is um, being opposed by his son, Absalom, who is leading a rebellion, and David concludes he is going to have to flee his royal palace, to flee Jerusalem. He goes eastwards out of the city of Jerusalem, descends down into uh, the Kidron Valley, and then we read about him climbing the hill opposite, the hill which is called the Mount of Olives, with people weeping as he goes because the king is being deposed and is fleeing. Remember that story. A second story found in 1 Kings chapter 1 is also important. King David ultimately returned to his throne, lived to an old age, and as he was dying, he appointed his son Solomon to be his successor. And Solomon was given David's donkey. Kings of Israel rode donkeys. We'll see why in just a, a moment. But uh, uh, just remember for now, Solomon was given David's donkey to ride as a sign that he was anointed king. And the third story comes from later in the story of the Old Testament. When Israel was in exile, the whole nation had been driven out of the land 
and Jerusalem had been uh, destroyed. But there was an expectation and a hope of restoration. And in Zechariah 9, 9, we find Zechariah promising that part of that restoration will be return of the promised king into Jerusalem. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. All of that, then, would be in an average Israelite's um, memory as Jesus turns up. Jesus, who is quite clearly in charge, leading the way. Did you see that? He went on ahead of them, going up to Jerusalem. Jesus, who, who is explicitly, according to Luke, following the path that David walked, though in the other direction. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, that is the Mount of Olives, he sent two men ahead of him. David fled Jerusalem, climbing up the same hill. Now here is Jesus walking the road in the other direction. He is coming for his coronation. Go into the village in front of you, verse 30, where on entering it you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever read, uh, yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. Remember Sol Solomon? Riding a colt, a donkey. Interestingly, Solomon rode his father's donkey because he was inheriting the kingship. Jesus, yes, is going to ride on a donkey, but it'll be one that no one has ever sat on. In, an, in one sense, his kingship is underived. He's king in his own right. He is utterly in command of the situation. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he'd told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they um, brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt and set Jesus on it. Here he is then, riding on a donkey. It has been the expectation of kings of Israel that that would be how they would ride from earliest of days, all the way back in Genesis 49 when uh, Jacob was about to die and was prophesying about his sons. He said about his son Ju uh, uh, Judah, which is the tribe from which the king came, he will tether his colt to a vine. And then Zechariah 9.9 explains to us clearly why the kings of Israel ride a donkey. Because they are lowly. Because they are humble. They do not ride a war horse. They do not um, uh, ride in Air Force One. They ride a donkey. Here's, here's Jesus then fulfilling all the hopes and expectations of the, the king that Israel had always longed for, coming now into Jerusalem, coming to his coronation, but coming humbly and gently.
The king is coming home. Actually, more than that, Luke seems to be telling us that it is not just the king coming home. It is God coming home. I don't know whether you noticed um, that, but Jesus says repeatedly, the Lord, tell them the Lord has need of it. Verse 31, verse 34. That could be just a conventional uh, way of describing someone who was uh, respectable and respected. But actually, by the time it gets to verse 38, there's no doubt when the crowds take on their mouths the phrase, the Lord, they're talking about God. Because, you see, running through the Old Testament as well, there had not only been an expectation of the king of Israel returning to reign from Jerusalem, there had been the expectation of God returning to dwell in his temple. In Ezekiel chapter 11, for instance, where Ezekiel is warning Israel that they will be sent into exile, we find that before the people are sent into exile, God takes himself into exile, leaving the temple, leaving the city. Ezekiel 11.23, the glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. The mountain east of it is the Mount of Olives. And the prophets again and again foresaw that that exile of God from his temple was only going to be temporary. God would return to his city, return to his temple. Isaiah, for instance, says this is the gospel. You who bring good news, Isaiah 40, or the gospel to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring the gospel to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout, lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. And then again in Isaiah 52, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring the gospel, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, you watchmen, lift up your voices together When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people, has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Here is their hope and expectation of God returning to Jerusalem. Here is your God. Your God reigns says Isaiah. The people are to lift their voices and shout with joy because God will come and win his greatest of all victories. In, actually, in, the, in the prophecy of Zechariah, Zechariah 14.4, uh, we find, find Zechariah saying this, on that day the Lord's feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord and his, uh, uh, his name the only name. And now the Lord 
who has need of that donkey is placing his feet on the Mount of Olives and it does not split. The Lord descends from the Mount of Olives because somehow the God who one day will come in that earth-shattering power is coming now in weakness. And it'll only be a week from then that it reveals quite how profound that humility and that weakness is. As the king of Israel, with the placard over his head, this is the king of the Jews, as the king of Israel is enthroned on a cross, as the Son of God who descended from the Mount of Olives is rendered immobile and vulnerable and weak. But there wins his greatest battle. The ESV, as every other Bible, calls this the triumphal entry, and there's lots that is triumphal about it. But in other ways, you see, it's paradoxically a weak and vulnerable entry. Because there the King of Israel, there the God of the Bible, reveals His character most supremely as He dies on the cross, as He pays the penalty for our sins, as He submits to hostile power and so defeats hostile power. You see, human beings always naturally gravitate towards power. Britain right now wants a strong, powerful parliament uh, that can stand up to the EU, a strong leader that can sort out all of our Brexit mess. America wants a strong president who can drain the swamp or, or display his wealth with towers named after him, or inspire the people with, yes, we can. Presidents in every nation, leaders of every nation, are elected because they project human power. And so human beings in our natural state will not be impressed with Jesus because King and Lord, though He is, He subverts that love of power that we have. He tempts us to say, surely this is, this is no person to worship. This is no person to follow. This is no God that I can worship. God on the cross. But you see, Jesus and the God who reveals Jesus has shaped this world for good more than any political power ever has in history. Jesus today is worshipped by, by millions upon millions 
of people. Jesus today is transforming the lives of millions upon millions of people more profoundly than any human power could do. Could do. Today, Jesus is worshipped and dogs are called Nero. Because you see, that is how true victory is won. And if we are going to be followers of Jesus here, we have to understand that precisely not, uh, uh, and profoundly, not just as a sort of tick box truth to be ticked off, but by something that shapes our very heart. It is the way Christians are to live in this world. It is the way battles are won for Jesus. It is the way Jesus is working in your life now. It looks unimpressive. It looks weak, but it is the way that he gives his victories. This church, for instance, um, I gather you're building a new facility. That is excellent. God's church needs a place to meet, and uh, uh, building a new facility gives the church a great tool. But it is not the hope of the church. I think I'm right in, in saying that actually the facility, the building is, uh, was there because another church failed. That should be impressed deeply on our hearts. The future of any church does not depend on its facility. Churches fail not because they've got bad resources, but because they stop trusting in Jesus. Because he just looks too weak. Because surely we couldn't invest our future in trusting in him. We have to give people bricks and mortar or whatever to give people confidence is not true. Maybe for, for your life, if, if, if you think politically that the future of the nation here lies in building a wall or not building a wall, you do not know Jesus. If you think your future lies in having enough money to keep yourself secure, you do not know Jesus. If you think that your, the, your, your future relationship happiness as a single person lies in the power of the mighty dating app, you do not know Jesus. No, he may seem to be unimpressive, but he is our hope. Here's our confidence. And if we put our trust in anything else, those things that actually clamor for our trust, we will find ourselves in the same chaos that our world descends into again and again. Here's the real king. Here's the real God. And there are three responses to him that I can only look at very briefly, but let, let me... Um, let me at least show them to you. Response number one. 
And each of them has a paradoxical opposite going on at the same time. Response number one, praise in the midst of skepticism. Verse 35, they brought the cult to Jesus and threw their cloaks on the cult and set it on Jesus. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Here is a, here is a red carpet being laid out. Um, remember, David once fled Jerusalem along that road, and at that time all the people wept. Not so now. They're praising Jesus as he returns along that road. What they what they praise, what they, what they sing is is wonderful. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Our deepest longings here. For the, the rule of a good and righteous king, for the peace that comes from that, heavenly peace, eternal peace, peace throughout the whole of God's creation. Glory as well. There's the sense of being in touch with the, with the, the glorious maker of the universe. But alongside this wonderful praise of the ordinary people who have seen who he is, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They are skeptics. There will always be skeptics who are not impressed with this king on a donkey. But Jesus says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The whole of creation, he says, is longing for me. And one day the whole of creation will be praising me. So it's up to you whether you join it. Result two. Here's the first one. Praise in the midst of skepticism. Second one. The offer of peace in the midst of rejection. Um, when they drew near, they saw the city. Jesus saw the city, verse 41. He wept over it. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace, he says. He is offering peace. He is offering peace with God. And the whole city, by and large, is going to reject it. And he weeps. Here it is then, praise and skepticism, first of all. They offer of peace, and in fact, by and large, a rejection of it. So that Jesus weeps. Third element, renewal, spiritual renewal in the midst of murderous opposition. Verse 45, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it's written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and scribes and principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything because the people were hanging on his words. Here he is, the man who comes in and he cuts through all the religious nonsense and rubbish. The religion of, of, of the temple had become just buying and selling of sacrificial doves. And he cuts through it all. He says, that is not what it is about. You do not follow Jesus to make a bit more cash. It is about knowing the living God 
my house will be a house of prayer, he says, and people hate it. Luke uses a phrase, the principal men of the city, probably because he wants to contrast Jesus' entry into the city with the entry that emperors made into cities when they were praised by everybody. And the principal men of the city would be first amongst those praising them. Not so here. The principal men of the city are plotting to kill him. That is our world. That is the world that Sojourn Houston lives in. A world where some are praising Jesus and the world is skeptical. A world where the, uh, the, the offer of peace with God is being offered and the world rejects it. A world where Jesus is purifying hearts so that people come away from all their, their religious stuff and come into that purity of knowing the living God and finding the delight of simply bowing before Him in prayer. And the world hates Jesus so much because of that, they'd like to kill Him. You know, we're in, we're in here an extensively Christianized country, but that is the reality of how every nation in every time has reacted to Jesus. And it is our calling as believers to just keep ministering in that hostile world. Do you see, for instance, three ministries of Jesus here that must be repeated in every age. He comes to rule as the king of our lives. He comes to bring peace. He comes to bring renewal. Three emotions that are very prominent in these responses. People respond with joy to Jesus. But Jesus himself responds with weeping for a world that rejects him. And indeed, Jesus even responds with anger for a world that has turned pure prayer into religious profiteering. We are called to those multiple reactions. Do you weep for this city? Do you feel angry when you see religion replacing real relationship with God? Are you someone who manages to praise Jesus even in the midst of skepticism? We live in a world of chaos. We live in a world where the center has not held. And there is loss of conviction and passionate intensity just as Yeats predicted. But we live in a world that has been visited by Jesus. In a week's time, we will be celebrating the supreme climax of that visitation as King Jesus surrenders everything for us. And that is a message to live by. That is a message to take into this world. That is a message which transforms our hearts. Let's pray. We bow before you, humble King Jesus.
the God on earth, you who shed all dignity, all liberty, all honor, and took upon yourself our sins on the cross. Transform our hearts, we pray. And send us out of here to praise you, to weep for our city, and to fight against everything that takes us away from pure worship of you. In Jesus' name, amen.